Hallelujah. Like the Psalms we prayed, Hallelujah. It's reminded during the worship, he who endures to the end will be saved. Partially, I think that's because we're at the end of the High Holy Day season. (laughs) And partially was because of the annoying noise. During the one song I felt like the Lord wanted to play this evening. So I feel like... Maybe what I have to say is important because I don't ever uh, feel this way when I come up to share. So I'm going to pray for myself and for you. Avinu Malkeno, our Father, our King, we thank you for this season that we've been celebrating your soon coming kingdom. Father, we are coming before you with thanksgiving offerings. Our own sacrificial thanksgiving offerings. And we're saying thank you. We're saying that we want to be a part of this radical remnant who's following the true king of Israel. This radical remnant who wants to establish a place on the earth for you to dwell. And we're calling forth your kingship. We're calling forth you as the king, the rightful king of the earth. Come and take your place. Nothing can stop the Lord Almighty. Nothing can stop the sovereign will of God. Nothing can stop your soon coming kingdom. Nothing can stop the return of Yeshua. Nothing can stop the high king of Israel. So, Father, help us to be on your side, be on your team. Recognize the commander of the armies of heaven, King Adonai Tzavot, Lord Yeshua. Speak to us. We thank you for the children being with us. Thank you for this family congregation, Lord, that this isn't just theology, but this is our life. Here we are again, all together for the 
ninth time this month or something. So I just thank you that we're a family and that we do life together. And it's not just theology, uh, but it's who we are. Uh, Give me the words to speak and may there be ears to hear. Bashem Yeshua. Okay. Oh yeah, kids uh, is five and under. Our, uh, can go to, I believe. <laughs> so we are going to conclude our return of the King series tonight. This is part five. And it's about the eighth day, as you might have figured out by now. It's probably why you're here. It's called Shemini Atzeret, and Shemini Atzeret means the eighth day or the eighth, and then Atzeret means a solemn assembly. So we are gathered here together because this is our solemn assembly. So we're going to talk about what is the significance of this uh, Moed disappointed time at the end of Sukkot. It's very strange uh, because, as I mentioned yesterday, Sukkot is seven days. If we turn to Leviticus 23, Sukkot is seven days. And yet, it's eight days. But it's also seven days, but it's eight days. It's seven plus one, which equals eight. Last time I checked. Why would God do this? It's interesting, right? I know the crowd's smaller tonight. The reason is because people are like, what's the eighth day, right? People are excited that we know about Passover. We come to the Seders, right? Why? Because historically the cross has been emphasized, right? And so it tails off a little bit in the fall holy days because the return hasn't been emphasized as much, even though we have this great secret, and that is that the Torah has all of these Moedim on the calendar. So even then we have this other day, That's less clear. All right, I'm starting to feel the Lord. (laughs) Leviticus 23, verse 33. Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say, On the 15th of this seventh month is the feast of Sukkot. For seven days... To Adonai. So clearly Sukkot is seven days. On the first day there is to be a holy convocation. You are to do no laborious work. For seven days you are to bring an offering by fire to Adonai. The eighth day will be a holy convocation to you. And you are to bring an offering by fire to Adonai. It is a solemn assembly. You should do no laborious work. Verse 39. So the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the first or the fruits of the land, you are to keep the feast of Adonai for seven days. For the first day is to be a Shabbat rest, 
and the eighth day will also be a Shabbat rest. It's just, it's almost funny. It's like, does God not know what he's saying? Right? Is he getting, the, are the numbers wrong? Is this a gloss, as they say in scholarship? Is this, is there something wrong here? That was a rhetorical question, I guess. Well, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're welcome to give me feedback, I guess. It seems, oh, yeah, I can hear you back there. It might be more interactive tonight, which I'm fine with. But it's consistent. I mean, we see the eighth day again in Numbers chapter 29. We see the eighth day in Second Chronicles chapter 7. And we see it in First Kings chapter 8. And we see other inferences specifically to the eighth day connected with Sukkot. So it's not that it's not clear in the text that there is this additional day that's a part of Sukkot, but it's not a part of Sukkot, but it's a part of Sukkot. Okay. Now what's interesting is that we've been having this wedding banquet celebration. I mean, we've been feasting every day. I'm going to have to start a diet like tomorrow night. And it was a great idea that the Lord had, right? I mentioned this on the first night of Sukkot, and that is that eating is actually prophetic. Have you ever heard that? I wasn't joking. Eating during Sukkot is prophetic. You're prophesying in the wedding banquet of the Lamb by participating in eating in a sukkah. Did you know that? You, in your Prophecy 101 class, you may not have been taught that. Another one is that the number one form of worship in Scripture is food, eating food. The sacrificial system is the number one expression of worship in the Tanakh, or the whole Bible for that matter. So did you eat in the sukkah? Or did you eat? I'm not saying it had to be in the sukkah. So you would think, therefore, this great celebration, this seven-day amazing joy that we've been talking about, this simcha at celebrating the return of the king, that this is it. This is the focus is the return. The focus is the kingship of Yeshua, that he's coming to the earth. Amen? I mean, that's it. That's everything, Right? Wrong. This is the, the strange part, right? Remember how I taught a few weeks ago that we think that the end goal is heaven. And we found out that, no, it's the resurrection of the dead, right? That we're coming back to the earth and that Yeshua is bringing his kingdom to the earth, right? And so that's the end goal, right? Plus one. It is at seven, but what's the plus one? The, the return of Yeshua doesn't end the story. This is a story. This is the human story. This is the story of all creation. It's our story in that sense. Okay. How long do you want me to teach? Something happens at the end of Sukkot. So we know that the Sukkot, of course, represents the millennial kingdom. Let me just 
review our timeline that what we've experienced. We had the great shofar, the last shofar that was sounding at Yom Teruah, the, the Rosh Hashanah. Yom Teruah means the day of blasting, literally. So we have this blasting that we heard on Yom Teruah, and then we have another shofar at the end of Yom Kippur, which is the shofar that's connected to the Jubilee, the release of the captives, okay? So Rich and myself and Dan Juster, we feel that the last shofar has to be at Yom Teruah. There are some people that think it's at Yom Kippur, Asher and Trader is one. I had this new theory that I think, based on the fact that we were discovering a few weeks ago, that God blows a shofar, and it says in, in Thessalonians chapter 4 that it's God's shofar that's blasted at the end, that maybe what happens is it's one shofar that's blasted all the way for 10 days. And it's the same shofar blast, which is why you're not sure which one it is, And that Yeshua, maybe at that time, he comes to the earth and he's parading around the earth for 10 days. And that's called the 10 days of awe. As this awesome God, you can see in the heavens and like Eric said, you don't need the internet. You don't need Wi-Fi because he's displaying the glory of God in the heavenlies, in the Hashemaim. But I'm not sure. But what does he do then? He brings his kingdom to the earth, right? King Adonai Tzavot, the line of Judah, brings justice and atonement and redemption to the world. And so much more. Let me read you briefly from Revelation 11. It's the last book. That was a joke. It says, Then the seventh angel trumpeted, which is the last shofar. So maybe it's a cacophony. It's an orchestra of shofars that are blowing. And it says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Mashiach, his anointed one, and he shall reign forever and ever. And in Greek it says, the kingdom of this cosmos has become the kingdom of our Lord. Back to Eric's teaching yesterday. This is about the cosmos. This is, this is the earth, the universe the beyond just humanity, it's the entire created order has come under the rulership of Yeshua. Okay. We could read a lot of passages about that. So he sets up his kingdom for a thousand years, right? And then we have this situation where Yeshua is ruling and reigning on the earth over humanity. Now, the question is, what do I mean by humanity? 
which humanity, and I want to just point out two things, which is important for the understanding, I think, of the eighth day. And that Yeshua rules and reigns, first of all, over redeemed humanity, redeemed or resurrected humanity. So there are the Kedoshim, the saints, many are caught up with him at his return, it says in Thessalonians 4, right? We talked about that. Anybody not with me? Okay, so the resurrected saints rule and reign with Yeshua for a thousand years. So he's ruling and reigning over the resurrected saints. But then, so we have those humans. They're resurrected humans. (laughs) Humans is a funny word, isn't it? Humans. The H can be silent. Okay. The second humanity... Or this are the people who are survivors, if you turn to Zechariah chapter 14, the survivors of the nations who came against Jerusalem and Israel in the last battle of this age. Are you familiar with that? So there are survivors. So not everybody uh, is killed when Yeshua comes and his robe is dipped in blood up to the, the bridle of a horse. There are human survivors, but when he came on the clouds, they didn't love Yeshua, right? So they didn't get their resurrected bodies because they didn't love God. But then somehow in the midst of the judgment, however it plays out, they call upon the name of the Lord and they're saved. But it's too late for the resurrection, So they transition from this age to the next age, to the millennial age. Are you following me? So what that means is that there are humans in their regular bodies in the millennial kingdom. Okay? Oh, I just quoted you the Zechariah 14 passage. There it is, okay? There's also, if we turn to Isaiah 65, another reference to these people. In verse 20, it says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the youth will die at a hundred years, but one who misses the mark of a hundred must be accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them, they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit, and they will not build and another inhabit, nor plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. So it seems as if it's almost like the early days of creation where men began to live longer under the perfect king, ruler, Yeshua on the earth. Okay. We don't do too many teachings on the millennial kingdom, do we? That's what I'm feeling right now. So here's what I want you to see. At the end of the thousand years, there are several things that happen. And let me rewind here and tell you a few things, if I can briefly. And that's about the eighth day. When you think of the eighth day, you've heard it's about new creation. It's about new life. It's about Yeshua resurrects on what day? The eighth day. Right? It's, it's, it's Shabbat, and then he resurrects on Sunday morning, which is the first day of the week, but it's kind of like saying what? 
the eighth day. So when you hear eighth day, you're still thinking about the resurrection power of Yeshua. And what else happens on the eighth day that's significant to every Jewish boy? Circumcision. So you have this other aspect of eight that's about purification. It's about holiness. It's about being set apart. But the main focus I want you to see is it's about, sir, it's about purification. And without going into all the details, when you look in Leviticus, Leviticus and the most difficult chapters in Leviticus that people fall asleep on and struggle with are the ones about purification. Can I, I don't want to get any hands. I don't want to get any hands. It's about tsarat, which is sometimes translated leprosy. It's about male and female discharges. Who, whose favorite chapter? It's about that one, right? You're like, you read it and you're like, God, why are you doing this, right? Why do you, and he's in very, I mean, they're chapter upon chapter, right? Why is he doing this? It's interesting because then what happens is there's protocol, specific protocol for cleanliness and purification. And then what happens is it takes seven days to see. And then on the eighth day, once you've been declared clean on the seventh day, then the eighth day, then you bring in a special offering and then you're presented into the camp. Seven days of purification. See, what happens in the millennial reign is that it's not just this snap and all of a sudden the entire earth is purified. It takes a thousand years with the perfect ruler, the perfect king Messiah, to purify his bride because the full bride has not made herself ready. We have a a lot of pairs in scripture that we have two end time battles, two resurrection, two. We have lots of different pairs. I don't have time to go into it. But the point is that we're not finished yet. We think we're finished at Yeshua's return and we're not. We still have humans that don't have their resurrection body. And then we have the salvation of those humans, which is called the salvation of the nations at that point. That we're praying for the salvation of Israel, which leads to the salvation of the nations. And when we say the, the salvation of Israel, and when we say the salvation of the nation, we mean the salvation of the surviving Israel and surviving nations. It's the people who are left who haven't died because there are some pretty serious uh, catastrophes at the end of this age. So it's about purification. And then it says a quote here in Leviticus twenty two twenty seven prescribes that no animal is fit to be offered to the Lord until it is eight days old. There's this principle that it, for whatever reason, it must get to eight to be fully purified. And I could go into that more. If we look at Leviticus chapter 8, it's the context of the priests being consecrated and purified. And in fact, Leviticus 9, 
The name of the parasha is Shemini 8. And it's interesting. Let's turn there. Leviticus chapter 9. People are watching the kids, so I'm just going to keep going. It's Rich and Sarah. Leviticus chapter 9, I'll do this quickly. Verse 4, or verse 1. Now it happened on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron, his sons, and the elders of Israel. And if you see the, the, the heading in the TLV, it says, The Kohanim began their ministry. This is uh, this consecration, this presentation. They're getting ready to be blessed into their ministry. And they're, they're doing these things, this final offering. Why? At the very end of verse 4, it says, For today Adonai appears to you. Verse 5, So they brought what Moses commanded before the tent of meeting, and the entire congregation drew near and stood before Adonai. And Moses said, This is what Adonai commanded that you should do, so that the glory of Adonai may appear to you. And then verse 23, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting, and when they came back out and blessed the people, the glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. There's something about coming to this purification process and getting to the eighth day that has to do with the appearance of God. The appearance of God. All right, we'll stop there. You're like, when's it going to get good, Tom? Here we go. Revelation chapter 20. We're all family, right? Verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He also threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Okay, we learned one thing here. Well, we'll keep reading. Verse, let's skip down to verse 7. When the thousand years has ended, Satan shall be released from his prison. And he shall come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle their number is like the sand of the sea, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the Kedoshim and the beloved city, but fire fell from heaven and consumed them. I'll keep reading. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are too, and they shall be tortured day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and the one seated on it. The earth and heaven fled from his presence, but no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was written in the books, according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Sheol gave up the dead in them. And then they were each judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Sheol were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, here we are. We're at the end of the thousand years. We're at the end of Sukkot. We are right now. This is where we are on God's calendar. Remember, God designed to have us for whatever reason, prophesy in, experience in, step into his timeline for all of human history. And today, as you sit here, this is where we stand. This is where you sit on God's calendar. The great white throne of judgment. Satan is let out of the abyss at this point, at the end of the thousand years. Now, one question I always had was, why is God going through this whole rigmarole? Why doesn't he just judge Satan at the end of this age? Anybody ever wondered that question? Well, I'm not saying I have the answer, but I have a suggestion on maybe a partial part. And that is that in the, on the earth for thousands of years... People have been under terrible leadership. Can I get an amen? With other, other congregations, I mean. No, I mean like kings of the earth. But you can throw pastors in. I mean, I mean it doesn't matter. Fathers. Mothers. It's been unjust. It's been terrible. It's been horrible. Think about people, you know, being raised right now in North Korea, which may be the worst. Is that just? Is the human question, right? What about the pygmy in Africa? So, I think that the thousand-year millennial reign is the great justice of God to say to the earth, to say to all of humanity that even when my son, even when Yeshua, the perfect high king of Israel, rules and reigns in Jerusalem for a thousand years, not five years, not ten years, not, well, I had a good reign, I was 50 years. For a thousand years, he rules and reigns he has all authority that's been given to him, right? And guess what happens that we just read at the end of a thousand years? Humans, not, re, not the resurrected, the other humans, that some of which all they have known because they were born into the millennial age. All they've known. Imagine that. All you've known is Yeshua? Dylan told me this story that they watched the debate. I hope it's okay to tell this story. I just thought of it. And he, let, he made his family watch the debate, the political debate. 
And I was like, was that a good decision, Dylan? And he said, he asked his kids afterwards, what would you guys think? And all I remember is what he said, that Eden said something like, it was terrible, or I just could she just was not happy. Is that, I don't know what the word, he's like, well, why is that? He's like, she said, they didn't mention Israel one time. It's like, wow. She's nine. And she gets it. And she's a, a Gentile from Kansas. You know? And yet, Yeshua's going to rule and reign, and the whole earth will know that Israel matters. It's not a, some teaching that I'm doing in Shawnee, Kansas. The whole earth will know. And they will fear. And yet, when Satan is let out of the abyss, some people will follow Satan. Imagine that. And to me it says this. It says, you get what you really want. That God will give you your heart's desire. The question is, what do you really want? If that doesn't put the fear of God in you, then you don't know him. And so nobody can say to the Lord on that great white throne of judgment, Oh, I didn't have a, I didn't have a good ruler. I had a bad dad. I, I, I was under the Obama administration. <laughs> right? He says, yeah, I'm ultimately, I'm so just, I will give you what your heart, your true heart wants, because I'm so just. And the proof is that some people didn't even choose my son ruled and reigned for a thousand years. I don't want to hear it. Well, actually, you won't make a defense because you will know. Okay, that doesn't have to do with what I was meaning to talk about. So then Satan and and. What happens is, then we have the resurrection of the evil dead. So, when Yeshua comes back, we have the resurrection of the dead, but it's not the, it's only the saints. It's not the evil dead throughout all the centuries. So then we have the evil dead that are resurrected at the end of the millennial unto judgment. Which is why I was saying a few weeks ago that she, oh hell, whatever you are think, thinking and imagining as the, the, the place of punishment for the evil right now, that's not their final destination because they will be resurrected unto eternal pun- more eternal punishment or different or something. It's not necessarily clear, but it says that you don't want the second death. that We just read it. Because the second death is... The lake of fire. So they've already died once. And then you're resurrected and you die again in the lake of fire. That's what it's saying. You don't want to be on that team. This is the great white throne of judgment. 
Okay, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you feel the fear of God, it's because we're talking about the great white throne of judgment. So it's bad news if you're on the wrong side. But it's not bad news if you love and you're in Messiah Yeshua. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also has come through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Messiah will all be made alive. But each in its own order, Messiah the first fruits, which first fruits is is uh, another moed appointed time. It's the resurrection that's on the calendar in the spring after Passover. Then, at his arrival or at his coming, those who belong to Messiah. So at his return, we have the resurrection of the saints. Then the end, and the end here in, in uh, uh, Greek is telos, which is the end goal. So I was talking earlier, like the end goal isn't heaven. The end goal isn't just the return of Yeshua. What is the end goal? Okay? What is the telos? What is it? This is the end goal. This is where all of human history has been waiting since Adam. Since the very first creation. It says, then in the end. Or then the end goal, when he, meaning Yeshua, the Messiah, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God put all things in subjection underneath his feet. Skipping to verse 28. Now when all things become subject to him, then the Son himself will also become subject to the one who put all things under him, so that God may be all in all. See, it says here, is what we're talking about, that Yeshua, at the end of the millennial kingdom, hands the keys of the kingdom to his Father. God the Father. After he destroyed all rule and authority and power. We just read that in Revelation. After he destroys Satan. After they are cast into the lake of fire. He said he must reign. He had to reign for a thousand years to do this. Until he put all of his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And it said that also in Revelation 20. That he throws death and Sheol into the lake of fire. Do you see the connection here? So that he could give the keys of the kingdom to his father. 
So the eighth day is the end goal of human history. Remember, our highest goal that God created us to be is to have covenant relationship with Him. That's the highest goal, is that His humanity, His Adam would have covenant relationship with Him. But it's not just an individual personal relationship, it's a bridal reality. Meaning, it's because we are the bride, so it's not just this intimacy, just you, but it's actually a family. He wants, and this is back to the origin of God, that he wanted, the Father wanted a family. The Father wanted a family. Not just one person. He wanted an entire family since the beginning. So what happens is that it takes this purification process of a thousand years, and then Yeshua gives his Father one new humanity. He says, Father, this is what you always wanted. This is why you created the heavens and the earth and everything, because you wanted this new humanity. This is the one new man. This is Jew and Gentile unity, because he wanted a family. Adam Echad. Chadash. One new man. He wanted, but it's different. I think it's better to say one new family. And so the father gets what his heart desired. And humanity gets what their hearts desire whether it's him or not. And Yeshua, I mean, what will that day be like? Because I was saying on the eighth day, it's about the appearance of God. And I'm suggesting that this isn't just Yeshua. And here's why. Because when you turn the page from Revelation 20 to 21... You have the new heavens, I'm almost finished, and new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, or from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, I also heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God, the tabernacle, the sukkah of God, 
is among men, and he shall tabernacle among them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them and be their God. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Nor shall there be mourning or crying or pain any longer, for the former things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. The same that's on the white horse in Revelation 19. And then he said to me, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give from the spring of the water of life. The one who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So he dwells with us. He becomes our God. We are his people. He makes all things new. We drink from the water of life, which we're reminded of Yeshua. Yeshua stands up in John 7 during the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And he says, I am the living water. And all who believe in me, fountains of living water, will come forth and you will drink and you'll never be thirsty again, right? He's talking about this water of life and he's either on the seventh day or he's going into the eighth day even. Or then we'll keep, or uh, where is it? Turn to the page or to 21 verse 12. Almost finished. Or back up, we'll go to nine. Then came one of the seven angels holding the seven bowls full of the seven final plagues. And he spoke with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he carried me away in the Ruach to a great and high mountain. She showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her radiance like a most precious stone, like a jasper, sparkling like crystal. And she had a great high wall with twelve gates, and above the gates twelve angels. And on the gates were inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And then fast uh, down to 22. I saw no temple in her, for its temple is Adonai, Elohet, Zevaot, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God lights it up, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. Its gates shall never be shut by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring into it the glory and honor of the nations." At the, this is the, the new Jerusalem at the end of the millennial kingdom has come down and we still have the nations. We still have goyim. We still have Gentiles. And then what happens? Gentiles go into the new Jerusalem through the 12 gates, which are the 12 tribes of Israel. 
The only way to get into the final kingdom is through Israel. The only way to come into the new Jerusalem, it says, verse, the very next verse, and nothing unholy shall ever enter it, nor anyone doing what is detestable or false, but only those written in the book of life. Only those written in the Lamb's book of life get into the new Jerusalem, and you must go through Israel to get there. This is John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews. This is part of the outworking of the redemption story of God. Even at the end of the millennium, you still see God's purpose and plan for the redemption of all of humanity using Israel and the Jewish people who he's put his name on. You still have Jew-Gentile. It's still back to this one new man that he wants to bring together as his bride. And then he wants to give it to his father so that we can have relationship with the Father. What will that be like? If you've ever meditated on this, and I encourage you to, it's overwhelming. What will this day be like? The Father? Okay, I'll pray one last, two last verses here. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the city street on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in the city, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. This is back to what I was saying in Leviticus that seven days you have to be set apart for the purification, and then on the eighth day you can go into the city. You can go into the camp. It's the same principle of seven plus one, and on the eighth day, which is the new heavens and the new earth, you get to go into the city, and at that point you get to see his face. Hallelujah. Last verse, verse 17. The Ruach and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the free gift of the water of life. The water of life that Yeshua pronounced at Feast of Tabernacles is available. This life-giving water is available for all of us so that we can 
drink of him forever and ever. Let's all stand. So, Father, we just say, Bo Yeshua. As the bride, we say, Bo Yeshua. Come and establish your kingdom. Come and purify the earth. Come, Yeshua. Give us your spirit. Purify us. Make us ready. Make us thirsty. Lord, make us hungry. Make the world thirsty and hungry. There's so many that don't think they're hungry. They don't know they're hungry. They don't know they're thirsty. Lord, help us to make people hungry and thirsty and give them a drink of water. Show them what's available in you. Lord, we just thank you for your, the awesome plan of God. We thank you for your Moedim. We thank you that, that you've laid all this out in the scripture for us. And that you're revealing this plan at this point in history. And that we're stepping into it prophetically on this day and just saying yes. Our job is just to say yes. It's such an easy job. Thank you for giving us an easy job. We just say yes. Have your way, your kingdom come, your will be done in this place, in this city, in this congregation as it is in heaven. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we just celebrate in this next day, this, this Simcha Torah, the joy in your word, the joy that you have given us your word to keep us, to sustain us, to watch over us. Father, I pray that we would actually walk in your commandments this year, that your commandments would watch over us and guide us, that you are the word who became flesh, who dwelt among men, and that you've given us your Ruach HaKodesh as a seal, as a sign, as an empowerment for obedience, that together we are the dwelling place of God, Jew and Gentile, under the headship of the High King of Israel. Father, I pray you would increase the radical remnant that is following your great King, that you would increase this radical remnant of Israel and the nations, that we would call forth your kingdom to come, call forth your King to come, that we would cry out, Hoshiana, Baruch that we would say, please come, save us, send your son to bring salvation, and that the waters would flow, the waters would come up uh, out of fountains of living water of the spirit that's inside each one of us, that we would come together and unify, that we would be a greater light, that you would send more people, Lord, so we could be a greater light to the, to the nations and to Israel. 
that you would purify your bride, that we would see the goodness of our God in the land of the living, not just in the age to come, Lord, but we would see your goodness even here and now so that we could proclaim the glory of Adonai, that we could talk about the glory of God that will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea that we could enter into this joy even today, even in the midst of this this dying world, this unjust world, this cruel world, this satanic world. Father, I pray that we would be a sign of the manifest wisdom of God to the principalities and powers and rulers of the air as we unify as your bride. as Adam Mishpacha Chadasha, as one new family, that we would demonstrate, confound the wise. We would confound people in this city. You're doing what? Lord, help us, I pray, for our relationship with New City, that, Lord, you would give us wisdom even just through that relationship, messianic congregation in the church, that we could demonstrate the unity of the body of Messiah. Help us, Lord. Hoshiana. Lord, I just thank you for this congregation, this family, for enduring. He who endures to the end, that maybe it was also about my teaching. Hallelujah. Maybe I'll just bless you guys as well. Vichuneka Yisa Adonai Panavelecha Vayisem lecha shalom Yisa Adonai Panavelecha Vayisem lecha shalom Amen.